Welcome to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, James Boyle. Mona Hanna-Attisha, a pediatrician in Flint, Michigan, who was crucial in exposing the lead crisis in the city, wrote in her groundbreaking book, What the Eyes Don't See, quote, If we stop believing that government can protect our public welfare and keep all children safe, not just the privileged ones, what do we have left? Who are we as a people, a society, a country, and a civilization? Across the U.S. and around the world, communities are confronting this question head-on. In places like Newark, residents are rising up, calling for accountability and restoration in response to high levels of lead in the public water system, and administration that actively misled the public, hiding evidence and downplaying what is now a critical public health crisis in the city. Similarly, community members in Edison just voted against a plan to privatize the town's water and sewage systems. Other communities across the state are fighting back against new fossil fuel infrastructure projects. Just last week, federal courts struck down a plan from Natural Gas Consortium Penn East aimed at using eminent domain to acquire state-owned land for its proposed natural gas pipeline. There is now a statewide movement calling for Governor Murphy to impose a moratorium on all future fossil fuel infrastructure projects. A crucial organization in these fights has been the New Jersey chapter of Food and Water Watch, which is fighting to create a healthy future for all people and generations to come. A world where everyone has the food they can trust, clean drinking water, and a livable climate. They are building a powerful grassroots movement that can protect our most important resources. Today, we are joined by Matt Smith, the lead organizer of Food and Water Watch, New Jersey. Matt, welcome. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Matt, let's just get started by introducing yourself. How did you get involved in this kind of uh, climate organizing? Yeah. yeah. So, um, first off, my name is Matt Smith, and I'm a senior organizer with Food and Water Action and Food and Water Watch. And I've been with the organization for seven years now and really started to link up with them around a pipeline fight in my own uh, hometown community uh, up in Bergen County, where Tennessee Gas Pipeline uh, wanted to build a massive frack gas pipeline through a stretch of forest that I grew up in and, and really built a love of nature around. And that local fight and getting involved as first as a volunteer and then as a staff member with Food and Water Watch was really my foray into environmental politics. Nice. And then Flint really has been a catalyst in exposing issues of environmental racism and injustice across the country and around the world for that matter. How would you define environmental justice and what trends and threads have you seen in the movement in, in your time in the movement? Yeah, so I think environmental justice is defined by really the disproportionate impact, particularly the pollution impact of heavy industrial facilities, of toxic wastes and Superfund sites on communities of color and low-income communities. Uh, you know, typically in New Jersey, the number one indicator of whether you live within close proximity to a major polluting facility is your race, is the color of your skin. And so, you know, no one's talking about building massive 
new fossil fuel power plants or trash incinerators in Short Hills, New Jersey, yet communities like Newark, New Jersey, Camden, New Jersey, are dealing with all all those kinds of pollution on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And the the campaign that Food and Water Watch ran in Edison was a, a massive success by any objective measure. It was a blowout, an 84% vote against a plan to privatize the town's water system. Can you give um, our audience some background on this campaign? Yeah, it was a really exciting day for us last Tuesday when Edison voters came out in droves to reject a proposal to privatize their water and sewer system. Uh, As you mentioned, the multinational company Suez teamed up with a Wall Street hedge fund, KKR, in a push to win an $811 million 40-year deal to privatize water and sewer utilities in Edison, New Jersey, New Jersey's fifth largest township. And they threw a ton of money at this. Um, They bought TV ads, Facebook ads, they had radio ads, they had, you know, even... Uh, big trucks on election day with giant plasma screen TVs going around telling people to vote no. Uh, and they, But they, they had one problem, and that was the people of Edison, who overwhelmingly understood that by handing over their essential resources, their water uh, and wastewater systems to a private for-profit company under the terms of this deal was really a, a predatory um, a predatory deal that that they would have suffered under. They would have seen rates go up, service diminish, and really remove all local accountability. And, you know, that's what we saw with Flint, Michigan. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't privately owned, but it was an emergency manager who was appointed by then-Governor Rick Snyder who made the decision to switch from the Detroit water system over to the Flint River, even though it was known for contamination. Uh, But again, you know, that lack of local accountability, local democracy, um, this emergency manager, Managers sort of unilaterally forced this this switch to the Flint River, which then led to to the ongoing crisis there. And then, what are some of the benefits of having community controlled uh, public resources? Because a lot of uh, residents in the state might think, "Hey, my bill might go down; it might be cheaper." Um, what are the vital protections that come with a community-controlled public water system? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, if you have a problem with anything from water quality or your rates or service, you elect the people who are making those decisions and are ultimately responsible. When a system is sold, or in the case of Edison, New Jersey, it would have been leased on a long-term concession deal, that local accountability is removed. Now the decisions being made about your water are being done in a corporate boardroom somewhere in France where that corporation has a legal mandate to their shareholders to maximize profits. Uh, We believe that public water is an essential resource that should be managed for the public good, not under a for-profit model. And then, of course, also uh, local publicly owned systems are subject to more close scrutiny under the Board of Public Utilities. Um, When you privatize, particularly on this deal with Edison, a concession deal, the Board of Public Utilities would have no oversight and no ability to uh, stop Suez from price gouging the residents. So prices could even go up if the, if it was privatized too. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you were talking about the just sheer amount of money that was going in to try to stop um, this kind of vote against privatization. Were there any doubts that you had throughout the campaign? Did you think that maybe it wasn't going to work? Oh yeah. I mean, I think right up until election day, when you see just how much money they were spending and the TV ads, you you you. I think it was natural for us to worry. 
Um, but we had truth on our side, and we had an unbelievable team of committed interns, staff, volunteers, and local residents who went door-to-door for months to educate Edison residents about this critical issue. And with the facts in hand, uh, the people of Edison showed that uh, really uh, people power won the day over corporate uh, spending on elections. And so now the the public water supply and sewage supply will stay in the town's hands for the next 40 years, or is it? Well, actually, that's the really exciting part, is that not only did we stop this really bad, terrible privatization deal, but Edison, New Jersey became only the third municipality in the entire country to outright ban water privatization, and they became the first to do so via a popular citizen-initiated referendum. Wow. So even just to qualify the question for the ballot, uh, we had to gather over 5,000 petition signatures from Edison residents to qualify it, and then obviously we won the the vote um, pretty uh, decisively. Wow, that's amazing. And Food and Water Watch is also working to get Piscataway off of fossil fuels and onto 100% renewable energy. And the organization has gotten nearly 1,500 residents to sign a petition demanding just that. And the issue will be on the ballot this upcoming November election. But some recent developments have kind of complicated this initiative. Can you describe what's been happening? Yeah, and just for context, you know, when the UN and the U.S. National Climate Assessment published their groundbreaking climate studies at the end of last year, the verdict was that, you know, we have a decade in mm-hmm. which to dramatically cut greenhouse gas emissions economy-wide to the tune of 50% reductions from 2010 levels to avoid runaway climate catastrophe, which really informed our plans to go town by town in, in you know, this environment where the Trump administration and even our state Uh, politicians are not acting with the urgency required, Um, we are going town to town to lead citizen petition initiatives to qualify questions that would force towns to transition to 100% clean renewable energy sources um, under a law called the New Jersey Energy Aggregation Act. And so um, New Brunswick passed uh, the question after we qualified it. Uh, the, The city council, to their credit, eventually did you know, recognize the benefits of the program and passed it on city council vote. Uh, Piscataway, uh, on the other hand, did not. They tabled uh, the ordinance, which was effectively voting it down, sending it to the ballot on November 5th. But simultaneously, at the very next council meeting, they passed their own resolution to go out to bid for energy aggregation, seemingly in an attempt to undermine our efforts. Um, You know, they even went so far as to say that Somehow, the the 1,400 Piscataway voters who signed a petition in support of 100% clean energy, somehow they were forcing it down the town council's throat. Um, That was how it was described by one council rep at their last public meeting. So we're excited for the opportunity to go to ballot. Um, despite, you know, Piscataway Council's uh, really regressive position on this issue. And we believe that the voters there will um, unite behind the science and choose not only a plan that transitions the town and all the residents and businesses to 100% clean energy, but also in New Brunswick, residents are saving over $100 per year on their electricity bills with a similar plan in place. And are there ways that Piscataway residents can make their, their voice heard to the council? Yeah, so on Tuesday, Day of this coming week, September 24th, there's a critical town council meeting in Piscataway at Town Hall. Um, we're going to be turning out our members and supporters and local Piscataway residents to attend this hearing and really 
uh, call foul on Piscataway Council's attempted maneuver here and really stress the importance and urgency of, you know, grassroots-led action for this transition to clean energy, which is essential to preserving life as we know it on on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to come back, um, but again, that meeting is going to be uh, this coming Tuesday at, I believe, 7? Yes, yeah, 7 p.m., September 24th, Piscataway um, Council Chambers. And yeah, it would be great to have not only Piscataway residents, but any member of the public who believes we need to be making this switch to clean energy. Great. We'll be right back after this break. Good evening and welcome to Why I Smoke, the game show that lets smokers defend their addictive, life-threatening, and disgusting habit. I'm your host, Harry Healthy. Let's welcome our contestants, Brenda and Joe. Let's begin with Miss Yellow Teeth, Brenda. Why did you start smoking? Well, uh, I thought I needed to lose like 10 pounds. Cigarettes were a way to lose weight. Ah, yes. Drop those inches and increase your chances at getting cancer, premature wrinkles, and infertility. Let's move on to Joe. Why do you smoke? I look cool, man. And the chicks dig it. What you need are women who also smoke. That way their teeth are just as stained and black as yours. Well, sorry my date with death contestants, but we're out of time. I'm Harry Healthy for Why I Smoke. Need any more reasons to quit smoking? Visit NJRebel.com. This message is brought to you by the Center for Addiction Studies and 90.3 The Core. Oh my God, it's so cold. I can't believe people think global warming is a thing. <laughs> Liberal media. Are you talking about climate change? Global warming? Yeah. Global warming refers to the, like, the long-term trend of a rising average global temperature. Climate change is different. It refers to the changes in global climate, which result from increasing average global temperatures. It's like changes in precipitation patterns and increased droughts and heat waves and other extreme weather. Like blizzards? Exactly. Record snowstorms in the eastern U.S. this winter caused 47% of people to not recognize global warming as a leading factor of climate change. Blizzards and other severe weather are still a result of the increasing average global temperature. This message is brought to you by 90.3, The Core. And welcome back to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, James Boyle. Today, we're here with Matt Smith, the lead, the lead organizer for Food and Water Watch New Jersey. Um, so one of the biggest statewide fights that's occurring right now is around the NESE pipeline, which, yep. I, as I understand, is a pipeline that will be connecting... Um, Long Island and New Jersey, if that's right. Yeah. Um, And what is this pipeline and how would it impact the state? Yeah. So the Williams Transco Company, which is an Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma based, you know, massive oil and gas corporation is proposing to construct a new fracked gas pipeline to transport gas that's being extracted in Pennsylvania via via hydraulic fracturing, which is decimating the land, the water um, out in rural PA. Uh, all the way across New Jersey and through the Raritan Bay um, into a delivery point in the Rockaways. Um, and really everything about this proposal it, or nothing about this proposal makes makes any sense or provides any benefit to New Jersey. We get all the risk and all the impact 
um, everything from allowing New Jersey to be a uh, conduit for more of these dirty fuels that are impacting our neighbors in Pennsylvania to the building of massive new compressor stations along the route of the pipeline. These are the engines that run 24-7 to compress and push gas through the pipes, but they emit tremendous amounts of air pollution, including ground-level ozone, which this area around New Brunswick and Central Jersey, the, the pipeline would go through Franklin Township, not too far from here, is already rated an F by the American Lung Association for smog pollution. So, and then lastly, the pipeline through the Raritan Bay would not only dredge up toxins that have been buried, you know, underneath the ocean floor there, the bay floor, um, things like PCBs and other contaminants, uh, but it would also disturb clamshell fisheries and wildlife. You know, migrating whales and uh, other uh, sea life use the, this corridor um, for for the migration patterns and doing a massive industrialization or industrial project to dredge the ocean floor and lay a new pipeline there, all for a fuel that's driving us towards cl climate catastrophe mm -hmm. is... Um, is really the definition of insanity. So uh, we've been fighting this project along with other groups throughout the state, and we got Governor Murphy back in June. Uh, this was a, a historic win for us because we, it was the first time we pressured a New Jersey governor to successfully reject Clean Water Act permits needed for the project to proceed because it had already had its federal approvals from the Trump administration. And so, of course, the company reapplied the very next week without even changing, really, their application substantively. So now we're looking at a September 25th permitting deadline for the water permits for the bay section of the pipeline. So anyone who's interested in taking action on this issue um, can go to stopnessie.org, or you can go to uh, Food and Water Watch, and, or you could simply text the words Nessie, N-E-S-E, to the number 69866. That's 69866, and we'll text you a petition to sign calling on Governor Murphy to reject the project once and for all. And then how important are, are battles over pipelines and the fight against the fossil fuel industry? I think there are some people in, in the movement who are very oriented to not um, expanding the reserves of fossil fuel companies, making sure that there's no new drilling rigs. But what do pipelines, how do pipelines kind of fit into the overall fight against fossil fuels? So the infrastructure is critical because if the industry doesn't have the ability to take away the oil and gas from the shale fields and from other sites of extraction, then they can't increase production. Um, and so, you know, really infrastructure is also in many ways a driver of demand. You know, we have a, a massive glut of cheap fracked gas on the market and drillers are not turning a profit because the stuff is so cheap. And so they need to create demand and they're doing that by um, trying to utilize uh, frack gas for electricity. They're doing it by building new electric power plants. They're doing it by setting up LNG export terminals. So they liquefy the gas, super cooled temperatures, and then the plan is to ship it overseas. Um, meanwhile, we're stuck with all the pollution and, of course, the, the climate um, madness. But perhaps the, the single most egregious thing that uh, the petrochemical industry is doing to promote Mark new markets for frack gas is by building massive new uh, plastics manufacturing facilities, the things that create all the single-use plastics that are really polluting our rivers and becoming a huge problem here in New Jersey, but also globally. And so we don't need this frack gas. We don't need more single-use plastics. We should be going in the other direction. And that's why fighting these new infrastructure projects uh, is so critical until we can get... Um, 
uh, a revamped Congress and a new president um, and, and a movement that's capable of electing them on a real commitment to address this with federal climate policy. Mm-hmm. And this Nessie fight also fits into a larger fight that's occurring in the state, which is a complete moratorium on all fossil fuel infrastructure projects, pipelines, power plants, and extraction projects included. Um, and it's kind of falling under this umbrella of moratorium Mondays. Uh, what is this campaign and why do you think it's important for the state? Yeah, so Food and Water Action has teamed up with over 90 organizations across the state, from groups like the Sierra Club and Environment New Jersey, to groups like Blue Wave and Indivisible, you know, groups outside of the environmental movement who are recognizing the urgency of the climate crisis and how really Governor Murphy is the one elected official in all of New Jersey who can stop these new 15 major fossil fuel expansion projects from moving forward. And this is a governor who campaigned on a plan to fight climate change by transitioning New Jersey rapidly to 100% clean energy. But when he released his draft plan, he very, or well, in an Orwellian, Trumpian maneuver, switched the definition of clean energy to carbon neutral energy, 100% carbon neutral energy would allow New Jersey to move forward with these 15 fossil fuel expansion projects. It would allow trash incinerators to continue to burn garbage in low-income communities of color. Um, And it would open up the door to uh, really climate destabilization wholesale. So that's why we formed this Empower New Jersey coalition, to call on the governor to uphold his campaign promise to transition us to 100% truly clean renewable energy sources like solar and wind, and on a timescale that's compatible with the science. And the first step to getting ourselves out of this hole in terms of the climate emergency we face we face right now is to stop digging. And that's why we're calling for a moratorium on new fossil fuel expansion. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, part of that plan that Murphy had signed in July um, aim to reduce carbon pollution that already exists by 80% below 2006 levels by 2050. Um, Is that a good timeline? How would you rate Governor Murphy's performance on climate more broadly, too? Yeah, I mean, Governor Murphy says a lot of good things on climate, and he does um, some good, he's made some good policy moves. Um, New Jersey's moving forward with the largest offshore wind project. Well, it was the largest until New York went, Mm -hmm. went, went even bigger. Um, But when it comes to having the political courage to stand up to the fossil fuel industry and say you're not going to build these new frack gas pipelines and power plants and compressor stations and export terminals in New Jersey, he's really failed to meet the mark. And the legislation you referred to, the Global Warming Response Act, that was based on science that has now been proven to be much more cautious and actually not accurate. The 2018 reports that I talked about at the top Mm -hmm. of the interview, the UN International Panel on Climate Change and the US National Climate Assessment give us a decade to cut Mm -hmm. greenhouse gas emissions in half. And here we are talking about 80% reductions by 2050. That's just kicking the can down the road. Um, And if we miss the emissions reductions that we need to hit in the next 10 years, it won't matter what we do in the remaining 20. Yeah. And it's also failing to recognize that that's a global target. And you have countries and states like New Jersey who have the infrastructure, the funding, and 
maybe not the will yet to do it, but definitely have the practicality to go to net zero by 2030. And it will need to happen um, if we want to hit that global target. Um, so it just really yeah. underscores and, the and a, and a And a population that supports it. Mm-hmm. You know, Fairleigh Dickinson, Monmouth University have done polling that shows New Jerseyans overwhelmingly support a rapid transition to 100% clean renewable energies to the tune of uh, 70%. And um, really what we lack is the will of our elected officials who are listening more to their major donors in the utilities, fossil fuel, and construction trades uh, as opposed to the overwhelming majority of New Jersey residents who recognize that we're on the front lines of the climate crisis here and that we need bold action from our elected leaders. And you mentioned the the broad support for for going to 100% renewables. Um, what do you say to residents who are concerned about the cost implications? Because this has changed rapidly um, this kind of argument too. Yeah, I mean, I would say that in many places throughout the country, renewable energy is the cheapest way to bring new energy capacity online. Um, so that's for starters, and the technology imp- is improving every single year. So it's only going to come down in cost. When we talk about these new power plants and pipelines, what people don't realize is that the ratepayers are the ones who are paying these. New Jersey residents are paying to um, finance these massive fossil fuel projects, we're going to be locked into them, not just for next year or the year after. These are 30, 40, 50 year investments. And so when the price curve for fossil fuels is going up and the renewables is going down and they've already crossed in many instances, what sh- the question is, what should we be investing in for the future? The, the stuff of the past that is leading us to climate ruin or clean energy that not only improves our air quality, our health, and fights climate change, but creates exponentially more jobs than every dollar invested in, in fossil fuels. And you mentioned the 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 funding of elected officials that's being a huge barrier to going to a, a, a just and rapid transition. Um, what Are there any larger national and international forces that are kind of blocking this transition from happening as well? Yeah, I mean, we can look at what ExxonMobil, you know, uh, what Exxon knew is is now uh, a campaign about how their own scientists were recognizing the impacts of climate change and how fossil fuels were driving those impacts, um, yet they intentionally, intentionally did not release that information to the public and instead um, partnered up with groups like the Koch brothers and um, Americans for Prosperity and all of these other, you know, far right wing think tanks to really plant seeds of doubt in the American public. You know, much of the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world recognizes the science because they haven't had these corporations spending billions of dollars to try and mislead the public about this critical issue that we face. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a short break, but we'll come back and talk a little bit more broadly about the kind of work that Food and Water Watch does and how they engage communities. But this has been Core of the Matter, the Public Affairs Forum for 90.3 The Core. Thanks for staying tuned to 90.3 The Core. Now The Core Community Calendar. Tuesday, September 24th. 
The George Street Ale House presents the New Brunswick Jazz Project featuring different weekly artists. The show starts at 8 p.m. and is followed by a 9.30 open jam session. Saturday, September 28th is Edison's Family Festival and Street Fair. The event will feature live entertainment, performers, rides, shopping, gourmet food, and service opportunities. Starting as early as 9 p.m., the fair will run all the way through 6 p.m. Sunday, September 29th, Highland Park is hosting its annual Arts in the Park Street Festival downtown. The all-day event invites artists of all kinds to participate. Now through September 24th, the League of Women Voters of the Greater New Brunswick area is celebrating National Voter Registration Day with an online trivia quiz. The quiz will offer 300 bucks to one winning contestant. The League reminds you to register to vote before October 15th in order to vote in November. Don't forget to check out our website at thecore.fm. And now stay tuned. More Great Core Radio is on the way. Want to know where artists are playing around you? This is the Core Concert Calendar. Wednesday, September 25th. Every Time I Die brings a concert like none other, the concert cruise aboard the Liberty Bell. The ship boards at New York City's Pier 36 and the doors will open at 6 p.m. Thursday, September 26th, New Brunswick's Barca City is hosting local musicians Jacqueline and Steven and Jeff Doubleday for an 8.30 p.m. show. Friday, September 27th, Strung Out is performing at Asbury Park's Asbury Lanes starting at 3 p.m. Sunday, September 29th, Census Fail is coming to Jersey City's White Eagle Hall. Show starts at 7.30 p.m. Tuesday, October 1st, New York's Gramercy Theater is hosting Being as an Ocean with special guests Dwayne Jackson, Holding Absence, and Anna Hada. Show starts at 7 p.m. Stay connected on Twitter for music news and more. The music never stops on 90.3 The Core. Hello? And welcome back to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, James Boyle, and we're here with Matt Smith, the lead organizer of Food and Water Watch New Jersey and Food and Water Watch Action as well. Um, so how does Food and Water Watch engage with communities, and has this work changed since you started at the organization? Yeah, I mean, we really core to our organizational identity and our theory of change, not to be too wonky, um, but how we get from where we are to where we need to be is we need a uh, people-powered movement. Um, Really, change and power is often taught to us that it comes flows from the top of our society downwards. And we fundamentally believe that that pyramid is actually inverted. And it is through our complicity with systems of power that uh, power is derived in our society. And, you know, this theory is is not ours alone, right? We, we have a, a rich history of social movements from the bottom up creating uh, transformative change in our society. Everything from... Uh, the labor movement, winning the 40-hour work week and um, and benefits and the right to organize to, you know, the civil rights movement uh, and extending the political franchise to previously, uh, you know, oppressed and, and um, disenfranchised communities. So uh, these were not led by elected officials, not led by wealthy corporations or by coming up with the most persuasive arguments. They were led because people got fed up and took to the streets and demanded change from their representatives. And I feel like, you know, we we are very careful about our research and our facts. We understand that um, all of that is important, but critical to our identity is the ability to mobilize communities, to take collective action, uh, to hold their elected officials accountable to meet the needs of, of our society. 
Yeah, and and speaking of kind of the historical place that the climate and environmental justice movement fits in, um, it has been, as many people have noted, a very white-dominated, very siloed movement. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is a real kind of transformation, a new a new global climate justice movement that's emerging. Um, are there other fights and movements at Food and Water Watch? Because I know you're part of coalitions that represent a whole cross section of issues and identities. Are there other fights that Food and Water Watch may be looking to get into in the future? Yeah, I mean, we recognize that what we need in this late hour where we have colliding economic, ecological, and political crises is we need a movement of movements. And so we are actively working in solidarity with the movement for uh, universal health care coverage. Um, we are working actively in solidarity with the movement for reining in corporate power and um, really establishing, you know, fair and accountable elections and, um, you know, really reaching across to our you know, brothers and sisters in so many different struggles to find that alignment and to get out of our silos, as you say, and really build a, a movement of movements that's capable of shifting the balance of power in this country. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had in, in your organizing and also some of your successes too? Yeah, so I would say one of the real unique challenges is when you're so passionate about your work which, which I was, I came from like a volunteer background. So I was doing it regardless. Um, but, but a personal challenge that I've faced along the way is just, you know, how to create boundaries, right? Because I feel like so many of us are so passionate and are feeling the urgency of our, of our moment. And, you know, many of us are struggling under systemic oppression and really wanting to, you know, work endlessly and tirelessly on on these issues and and ultimately build the movements that we need but unless we're simultaneously prioritizing our own health and our own happiness and working in communities of care and intention to support each other through movement um, you know far too many of us will will fall by the wayside and, and burn out so I, I think that's been a, a particular challenge that that um, that I've been practicing over, mm -hmm. over my seven years of, of work. <laughs> I can definitely echo that as well. Um, are there any successes that kind of stand out to you over your, over the time that you've been at Food and Water Watch? I mean, this was a, uh, in many ways, small win, but when we, when I first started organizing, I had mentioned that pipeline that they wanted to build in the park near me up in the Rampo mountains. And, um, you know, there are first people, indigenous people that still live in the Rampo Mountains and, um, you know, pray there and practice ceremony and have sacred sites and burial grounds. And have had their own history of environmental injustice as well. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, we lost that first pipeline fight, but the relationships that we built um, carried on and persisted. And when another major fossil fuel project, the Pilgrim Oil Pipelines, which was a dual oil pipeline proposal right along the ridge of the Rampo Mountains, um, down through central Jersey and into the Bay, uh, the Bayway Refinery in Linden. We led a successful three-plus-year fight um, that stopped that project before it even got started. The company never received a single permit. And, you know, at the apex of that fight, you know, coming from this real low of, you know, we lost the original pipeline fight to not only were we 
winning this pilgrim this fight against this pilgrim pipeline but the rampo lenape nation um you know sent hundreds of their um tribal members down on buses to a major march on the dnc that we organized to demand that the democrats include a ban on fracking as part of their official party platform because we recognized that these pipelines they recognized that these pipelines were being driven by fracking and to, so to see a, a community a first nation that was historically so impacted and in many ways ignored and left to to deal with their uh, uh, poison and oppression without any solutions to join a broader movement um, and and not just join, but lead it. And leading our 5,000-person our march through the streets of Philadelphia on the DNC was, was a particular high point for me. Nice. And I think that you're speaking about the urgency of, of making this movement and allowing this movement to grow and break out of its silos. I think the conflict between individual lifestyle change and larger system changes has been an age-old and widely felt struggle um, with people in the climate justice movement. How do you navigate the two, and do you think one is more important or, or more effective than the other at this point in the movement? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I don't think that we can ignore the reality that we, as individuals, are operating within a system. Um, and that we have limited choices to make within that system. Very few of us have the privilege to not go to work every day to make a living. And many of us have to rely on the transportation options that are available to us. And, you know, it's the, the reality that because of decades of public investment in highways and cars, everything from pushing the electric um, cars, you know, into the ocean, uh, you know, back when the, the automobile was first becoming, you know, a dominant player on the American economic scene to today, when we still subsidize roads and highways and individual car transport to the tune of 20 to 1 here in the state of New Jersey over public transit, um, we have limited choices we can make. And that's not to downplay. I think that there is a spiritual and uh, mental component that by making the right decisions, um, by changing our dietary habits, by growing food with local uh, local agriculture, by riding our bikes when we can, foregoing cheap air travel, you know, for um, more localized travel. Uh, those things are important because I think they enrich us for the collective fights ahead, the political fights, which is ultimately what we need to turn the tides on on climate disruption. Yeah, we had um, Tina Weisshaus on here a few weeks ago, who um, is also part of the coalition that we're part of that we'll speak a little bit about later, um, who is definitely not someone who is uh, shying away from system change. She's fighting for divestment from uh, the state pension funds at the state level. Um, but she also won a plastic bag ban in Highland Park. And I think what emerged for that for me was the the ability to start a conversation with other people and bringing them into a fight and saying, we won this, let's go for something bigger. And I think that can be incredibly important. So I definitely agree that system change and individual changes can really be important in the overall movement. Um, but one big um, initiative that's pushing for rapid and radical system change is the Green New Deal, um, which is being talked about on the national level. There's also kind of local models emerging as well. What are your thoughts about the Green New Deal specifically? I mean, I would say that the ideas and core values embodied in a Green New Deal is exact, exactly the kind of bold policy approach that we need to be taking to the 
connected and colliding crises that we face with public health, ecology, and our economics. Um, I think more than anything else, the Green New Deal has become a banner in which to unite our movements for worker justice, you know, to abolish student debt, to guarantee the right to clean water um, and health care, and to avoid climate catastrophe, to really align a popular movement of movements um, is the strongest single uh you know, value of, of a Green New Deal. I, what I don't think is, I don't think that we've gotten to a point where um, we've seen legislation, like an actual piece of policy that lays out all of the steps that we need. I think Bernie Sanders' climate plan probably comes the closest and is along the scale and not only talks about the development of renewable energy, but he is the only political candidate in the arena now talking about a planned end and phase out of all fossil fuels. So I think ultimately that's quickly become the North Star of um, climate policy in this country because, yes, we need a just transition and rapid development of renewable energy. But if we fail to also stop the bad stuff and say no to fracking and no to more fossil fuel projects, um, we'll, we will have missed our chance to avoid, you know, complete climate um, chaos. And do you think that, you know, Bernie Sanders released, a, obviously, the plan that you're talking about, I think it's the tune of $16 trillion. Um, do you think that these kinds of, while very much needed, I think we can all agree, do you think that these kinds of high-ticket um, plans will have kind of viability in this kind of political environment? I mean... I do. I think that Bernie is polling well in many parts of the country that aren't necessarily viewed as, you know, uh, overly liberal or elite places, you know, that that tend to be associated with these kinds of bold proposals. Um, If you look at how he's doing in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, Texas, um, Texas, right? These are... these, these are, uh, it's a dim- different demographic and he's doing extremely well. And I, I think, you know, people realize this. People realize that the $6 trillion that we've spent since 2010 on wars in the Middle East that have um, only enriched the chemical, oil, and weapons manufacturers and companies and have bled our country of critical public funding that we need for healthcare, education, infrastructure, people get it. And I don't think that anyone who's representing the establishment um, and the status quo at this point is a popular candidate. I think we're, we're seeing candidates like um, Biden and others really um, lose and, and fall out of, uh, you know, fall in the polls because they represent the status quo. And I think people are hungry for change. And um, I think candidates that can articulate an anti-establishment, progressive platform that regular people can see themselves a part of and their issues being represented, I don't think there's any question that they will win the support of of the majority of American voters. Do you think that more localized models of Green New Deals are are effective as well? And at least in terms of the practicality of, of getting those to kind of turn into meaningful policies? I think it's critical that we prefigure what we need to do on a national and even global level here at the local level. I mean, in parts, that's what's driven our 100% renewable energy campaign in New Brunswick and now in Piscataway. Uh, But we even need to think bigger than that. We need to be talking about um, community solar 
and local programs to put people to work and train them and place them in these industries. And, you know, even our local governments have the ability to creatively aggregate resources to, to do the work that we need to do. Um, and we're seeing a model of that in Jackson, Mississippi, under Cooperation Jackson, um, under a, a very progressive mayor and a grassroots movement that is building a cooperative economy down there. So I think there are great models, and they can provide uh, the roadmap and the lessons that we need to, to implement a fair uh, Green New Deal, not just a, a rapid one. Yeah, and even Germany, which was done on more of, of a national scale, but you have a huge growth in community solar and wind co-ops where they're directly benefiting from the energy that's being produced there. Still problems with coal production there as well, um, but definitely something where you can see communities rise up and demand that they have control over their own energy. Um, but we're going to come back after this short break to talk about the coalition that we're both a part of and a major action that's occurring in just three days. I can't believe it. <laughs> um, but we'll be right back after this short break. Thanks. she was. You gotta help me, she said. How can I help you, little lady? I can't listen to my favorite radio station, 90.3, the car. She had just moved to the big city from a small town in Jersey. Well, miss, you came to the right place. Just head to thecore.fm, where they are streaming all your favorite shows 24 hours a day. You can even make a request right there on the webpage. Well, how can I ever repay you? Don't thank me, ma'am. Thank 90.3, the core. Another open and shut case. Now you can send us your selfie when you're jamming out to the core. Tag and follow us at the core FM on Instagram and Twitter. Let me take a selfie. Welcome back to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. We're here with Matt Smith, the lead organizer of Food and Water Watch New Jersey. Um, we're coming back to talk about um, a coalition that we're both a part of called the Central Jersey Climate Coalition, um, which is a new alliance of Rutgers students, faculty members, local high schoolers in Highland Park and New Brunswick, as well as community members um, across Central Jersey um, who are demanding action on climate. Um, we are demanding at Rutgers um, that the university commit to net zero carbon emissions by 2030. Uh, President Barchi actually just released a statement this morning um, giving support to it, not a full commitment. He's also will be leaving in a few months, so we'll see what that turns into. Um, we're also demanding the university divest from fossil fuels by 2024, develop a climate action plan immediately, and establish an office of sustainability that will oversee all these demands um, by the end of 2020. 
We are also targeting Congressman Frank Pallone, who is the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee in Congress. He holds immense power to take action on climate um, and hasn't had the best record. Um, I'm sure Matt can speak more to that. Um, But he has said that a ban on fossil fuel donations is, quote, the wrong way to go. Um, He has pretty much blocked hearings on the Green New Deal. So we're asking that he endorse a strong Green New Deal with some of the um, kind of emissions that we had talked about earlier in the program, hold fair hearings on a strong New Deal, um, and also return every dollar that he has received from the fossil fuel industry and impose a moratorium on any future fossil fuel donations. Wow. Okay. Um, Why did you join the coalition and why did you think it's important? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's probably something that I would have would have joined anyway, but I think what's most inspiring about this moment that we're in is that young people are, are leading and the adults are, are following their lead. You know, we have 16-year-old Nobel Peace Prize nominee Greta Thunberg, who came to New York on a sailboat, two-week voyage, um, to really bring this next wave of global climate strikes here to the U.S. and expand it. And we see, I just took a look at the map today, there's hundreds of actions, including dozens in New Jersey, being planned, and really big ones in New York and here at uh, Rutgers University in New Brunswick. Um, So the Central Jersey Climate Coalition is exactly the kind of table that we need. It's got representatives from student organizations across all different issues. Um, It has representatives from grassroots groups. It has nonprofits and NGOs such as Food and Water Action, and it even has labor unions like the Teachers Union, who mm-hmm. is a, a key driver of progressive change here in, in New Brunswick. So I think with that kind of formation and the nucleus that we have, uh, that it sets us up to really build something that has transformative power. And it's interesting, the idea to, I mean, the university makes a logical target being that this is a youth-led Strike and and students at Rutgers clearly, uh, you know, have a say in the in in how the university addresses these existential uh, threats and and the ecological and climate crises. But for Congressman Pallone's um, perspective, or or at least mine on on the congressman's, you know, historically he has been a leader on these issues. You know, he's stood up to offshore drilling off the Jersey Shore. He's you know, been more vocal than most when it comes to standing up against fossil fuel infrastructure projects and really um, resisting the Trump climate denial agenda. But I think even Congressman Pallone is being surpassed in this moment and is dem- has demonstrated that he is perhaps not up for the task and not acting with the urgency that is required in this moment. I think a politics as usual strategy of negotiating and patience and uh, concessions with private, you know, multinational corporations and their economic and profit interests is no longer no longer acceptable, right? And so we need bold change, and 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 we need elected leaders who are not afraid to stand up to power. And uh, Congressman Pallone has thus far failed that litmus test. And I think that's why it's so inspiring that hundreds, if not thousands, of his own constituents here at Rutgers and from the uh, 6th District will be rallying at his office demanding uh, that he unite behind the science with the rest of us and get behind the kind of uh, sweeping changes we need to make. 
Yeah, and if you want to join that action, that'll be this Friday. We're going to have two different rallies. There'll be a rally starting at Rutgers at 2.30 p.m. on Voorhees Mall, which is the main green space on the College Ave campus. It'll be behind Scott Hall. Um, we, if you can't make that one, I know parking in New Brunswick can be tough. Um, you can go to the Highland Park rally, which will be outside the Reformed Church of Highland Park on South 2nd Avenue. And then we will all be marching to Congressman Frank Pallone's office, meeting there at around 4 o'clock p.m. Um, to demand action on climate. Um, so we encourage all of you to come out. Um, and also, you can go to Food and Water Watch's website um, to find out more information about any other initiatives coming up. Are there any things you want to plug before you leave? Well, we talked about the yeah. council meeting in Piscataway on the 100% renewable referendum. Um, so that's September 24th at 7 p.m. at uh, Piscataway Town Hall. Uh, where we'll be speaking up in support of a real municipal plan to get to 100% clean energy. But, um, no, I think that the, the climate strike is really, you know, in all one of those all-hands-on-deck moments. And, you know, when we have young people who are bravely skipping out on school and, you know, in many ways risking their own um, future and, and uh, grades and, and, and sacrificing their own education to really lead this, this global movement, um, it's imperative that the rest of us heed their call. And um, on that note, Matt, thanks so much for coming in. Again, he's the lead organizer of Food and Water Watch Action and Food and Watch New Jersey. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, likewise, Jane. Thanks. This has been Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core.